sitting for this one. Don't get too worried. It's not for length. Maybe. I am, that's true. Four months older than most of when the, you guys saw me for the last time. So, um, <clears throat> For those of you who don't know me, my name is Daniel and I serve as the lead pastor here at Terranova Church in Saratoga. It's good to be back with you guys. Um, today, uh, I felt prompted this way, but it was affirmed by Pastor Matt and others. I, just, I wanted to share a little bit from the overflow of my sabbatical. I debated this because I really don't want to make it about me, but I think there's a way that I can both honor the fact that a part of what family does is share what's going on in each other's lives, and at the same time find ways, I think, to be able to encourage you today with the things that God was working in my heart during that time. Uh, so this isn't going to be a typical sermon. Um, it'll be a little bit more conversational, a little bit more of the overflow of my pilgrim journey, if I could use that term, just meaning like my personal journey of following after Jesus over these past four months and beyond. And um, I won't necessarily be proof texting everything, you know, statement followed by scripture, statement followed by scripture, but I wouldn't be sharing anything with you today that I didn't believe has biblical backing uh, and is a part of the common experience of, of Christians. Um, at least that's my hope and my aim. Those of you who don't know uh, much about Terranova Church, maybe you're newer. In fact, there's a lot of unfamiliar faces to me, um, and I'm looking forward to meeting you and getting a chance to get to know you, and Pastor Matt has started to catch me up on some of what's gone on over the past four months and some of the new families and individuals who are here. Um, but you may not, maybe this is your first Sunday or third Sunday, and you just may not know even what a sabbatical is. Uh, so sabbatical has its root in both Latin and Greek, and it means of the Sabbath. And Sabbath is a biblical word for rest. So a sabbatical really is an extended period of rest uh, that oftentimes is built into the life of pastors in a local church. Um, and I just wanna say, while it's been hard to come up with the right adjectives, I'm so thankful for that time. My, and I can speak on behalf of my family too. We're so grateful. Uh, it was such a blessing. Um, in both the ways I expected it probably would be and in ways I couldn't have known without actually going through it. So we're super thankful. Part of the reason it was such a benefit to us is because having to lay aside the responsibility to pastor the church for a while, and I say having to because I had a good team around me who was kind of safeguarding that. They know my propensity, propensities, and they just kind of guarded me. Get, no, you, you just need to be fully removed during this time. And, and have, having to do that actually enabled me to be a, a pilgrim following after Jesus with no strings attached. Um, not as a means, not seeking God as a means to the end of preaching or counseling or teaching or one of the uh, other various facets of ministry. It's just, it's hard for me to segregate those things, time with God for the sake of ministry rather than just time with God as an end in and of itself. Um, I, I don't think it has to be that way. It's just something I struggle with. It's probably not unique to me as a pastor. I think that's a part of the reason why historically sabbaticals have been built in. And so it paid off. Um, it, it served me really well. Um, I'd be remiss not to say briefly, I'm so thankful 
to those of you who helped make that possible. I'm sure on some level the whole congregation who's been a part of our, our church family um, that is core to who we are, but you know, specifically Pastor Matt pulled a lot of weight, um, and Amber Jacoby, our administrative assistant, um, Bernadette, thank you. I know that you pulled a lot of weight in leading worship, as did the other members of our worship teams, to free up Pastor Matt to shepherd you guys in other ways. Um, Reuben Todd, who's uh, an, an elder in process and likely will be ordained later this fall. I know that Matt felt his presence in a supportive way, Pastor Matt did, and was thankful for the ways that he served. Other teachers and preachers, Paul Fekeda and Madison Wyman and TJ Steers, um, grateful for you guys. My biggest fear right now is I'm missing people uh, who stepped up in big ways to help make it possible for my family and I to get that rest that we needed. Uh, but God knows who you are, and Pastor Matt's still kind of filling me in on the last four months. So thank you at large to you guys, my church family. Um, there are many key themes from the sabbatical that uh, were really impactful to me. Uh, it's really hard to narrow down what I wanted to share with you guys, and probably some of that will come out organically over the course of time uh, in community and in preaching. But I tried to narrow it down to four different themes, those being identity, communion, mission, and weakness. And I actually experienced those kind of chronologically in that four-month period, and I'll try to tie that together in terms of how that was a natural progression. Um, but I actually uh, also made a, a game time decision this morning as I got into preparing this. I'm like, whoa, this is way too long. <laughs> so I'm splitting it up. And this morning I want to talk about identity and communion and how those things were significant themes for me over the course of the sabbatical. Next week I'll talk about uh, mission and weakness. And it actually makes sense too. Um, this sense of purpose or mission that I cultivated over the sabbatical personally and that we've started as a family was one of the most significant themes. Um, but it'll make sense to kind of talk about that next week because our men's retreat is this Thursday through Saturday. And unbeknownst to me, I talked to Pastor Paul Gordon. He's a pastor of one of our other Terra Nova churches in North Adams. Uh, toward the end of my sabbatical, and I said, Paul, like, I just have to tell you about how significant this theme of like actually having a personal sense of mission and that I've crafted and is before me as a true North how influential that has been and I think will be in my life moving forward. And he said, huh, funny you should say that because our, at our men's retreat, the theme for this year is gonna be finding joy by enduring and faithfulness. And this, the key speaker is gonna be uh, Dave Pinckney. And Dave is the, he preached here earlier this summer actually. And he's uh, the uh, director of Acts 29 in the Northeast. Um, I've come to know him in recent years as somebody I, I would say is a friend and just a uh, a godly mentor from a distance. He's probably in his mid-60s, and those who know him well would say, this is a guy who's endured faithfully, which the older I get and the more I'm in this realm of church ministry, the rarer I find that to be, because it's hard. It's hard as a Christian in general. It's, it's hard for pastors to endure faithfully. Um, and one of the things Paul said was most impactful to him is having a personal sense of mission and, and vision, which if you asked him, he could tell you like that, what it is. And uh, I'm like, ah, oh, that's cool, because that was really significant to me. And so that's gonna be the focus of this men's retreat. How do we endure in faithfulness with joy? And so it'll dovetail nicely next week in picking up and talking about that 
facet of my uh, sabbatical and how important mission has been to me and I, I think needs to be for all of us and I'll hopefully unpack it in such a way that you may be able to think about that for yourself, start that journey of well, what is my personal mission. So let me start off by sharing a little bit of uh, the theme on identity and how that was significant to me on this retreat. Uh, my, our re retreat, or excuse me, sabbatical started off in May. Um, that was the beginning of it, and it was May 5th or 6th. Um, I headed up to Silver Bay, which is a, a YMCA conference center on Lake George. Beautiful. Some of you have been there. I think we've had women's retreats there before. They have a pastoral respite program up there, which is a huge blessing. So I went up for a few days before my family joined me, and I spent that time uh, not the way I had originally intended to. I, I wanted to just kind of, okay, now I get to spend this time with God, and part of my nature is I have to kind of like plan, and I, I spent more time on that retreat than anything else reverse engineering how I was going to fit all the things into the sabbatical that I felt God was leading me to do. And, and there's something actually good about that, but... Um, it wasn't uh, as spiritually life-giving as I'd hoped as a kickoff to the sabbatical. However, unbeknownst to me, a smaller portion of that I spent trying to answer this question that a wise pastor who's gone before me and had taken a sabbatical said, I need to answer this question. Who am I besides a pastor? Because uh, contrary to what some people may believe, if a pastor stops being a pastor, poof, they don't just disappear. We're more than just pastors, um, which I don't think is actually a perception that people in this church have. We're, you know that we're real people. I grew up with that, though. It's kind of like when you're in school and uh, you think your teachers live at school uh, when you're young, that that's all that they are. That was kind of the perception I had of, of my pastors growing up, too. They lived in the church, um, and that that's all that they did was pastor. Um, so it was an important question for me to ask uh, and not as obvious as I thought it would be in terms of what, how I'd need to answer. So there were six identities that I came up with that weren't necessarily new to me, but needed a refresh or to go deeper in or to really explore the depths of what does that even mean for me personally. And those were that I am a soul, I'm a body, I'm a child of God, I'm a creator, I'm a husband, and I'm a father. And that's not an exhaustive list. Um, those are just the things I needed to most revisit. God knew that and laid those things on my heart. These are the places I wasn't really whole. Um, and so what I did at, the, at that retreat up at Silver Bay is I began to actually define those things. To, and then I reworked them and I fine-tuned them even over the course of the whole sabbatical. And it wasn't the final statements I'll share with you that were really the win. It was the process of getting to those final statements that I now can say clearly that was the win because it was really just time with the Lord and prayer and discerning what does it even mean for me to be these things. And I'll also say too um, that each of these that I'm going to talk through are really the intersection of the universal calling on all people's lives, Christians in particular, in terms of what your identity is with, with my personal unique history, experiences, gifts, skills, weaknesses, and strengths. And so again, that's where the value to this comes in. Nobody can hand you a definition for identity and say this is your identity without you actually living into that and tweaking it and defining it according to who God has specifically made you. There's both a universal component and a very personal one. And so these were the four. I am a soul made to know and be known. 
I'm a body made to move and function to the glory of God. I'm a child of God made to enjoy his good gifts, namely him, but even the many other blessings that he pours out in my life. I'm a creator, and I'm made to create order and beauty. So I want to unpack each of those for you briefly. I'm a soul, and I'm made to know God and others and be known by God and others. Now, the opposite of that is to isolate, to isolate from God and to isolate from others. And, um, and I, I don't think I realized to the degree I was doing this, but as I got into my sabbatical, um, it became evident that that was, uh, that was where I was kind of at. My capacities for relationship had grown really thin. It wasn't that I didn't like people, it's that I felt I didn't really have anything to offer. And so the natural response when you feel that way is to withdraw for fear of being exposed, for being shallow, for fear of being overwhelmed by other people and their own legitimate, significant needs. It became clear to me that this was what was happening when we went out to California um, where Leah's parents live. So we stayed for six weeks out there and it was a really rich time just having their support. Really thankful for them too. Um, probably our richest when it came to being able to really self, like reflect and process just because of the support we had by being out there. But we were swimming in, in a pool one day. Um, they live in a retirement community that has an HOA and so there's a shared pool and there was another family there and they were really engaged in a, like, a genuinely kind way with our family, asking questions about us and my father-in-law and wife and kids were all kind of engaged and I just found myself figuratively and literally like distancing myself, like moving to the other end of the pool because I felt like if I engage in this, then I'm obligated to remember names, remember details of their life, because I feel like that's important, but I feel like I just don't have the capacity. If I see them again, I'll feel horrible if I can't remember these things, so I'm just gonna withdraw. And it was this eye-opening moment that like my well had run dry when it came to capacity for relationship. But what I realized was isolating wasn't the ultimate answer. In fact, that's the opposite of what I needed to do. Um, we need to press in. We need to know and be known. That's what we were designed to be as souls before God and other people. Uh, Psalm 23 tells us that um, the Lord restores our soul. Well, he doesn't do that if we isolate from him. So some things needed to change for me. First of all, I had to learn that I needed to go to God without strings attached not go to God as a means to some other end of serving him or figuring out an answer uh, to some problem in life that I was having, but just to be with him. Another thing that I had to change was this mentality that um, true rest and receiving from God doesn't require work. I think TJ did a really good job last week of emphasizing that, that real rest um, isn't, uh, doesn't require no work, it actually takes work. Um, there's a false notion that I lived with, I think, even if I wouldn't have said it, that Christian rest is removing ourselves from everything. When instead, I think Christian rest comes from removing ourselves from some things in order to give and to receive from the most important things, namely God. And not every relationship, but particular relationships of people around you that you can be truly transparent and vulnerable with. And so the sabbatical gave me the space to recognize what I needed to remove from my life that, had, that I'd been crowding my heart and my mind and my time with 
which was working against being known, like knowing God and being known by him and others so that I could then give and receive in relationships in a healthy way because I'm a soul that's made to know and be known. That was, that was significant for me. That's part of my identity. It's part of yours, however you'd want to word it. Secondly, I am a body made to move and function to God's glory. It's easy for me to forget that my body is not just a means to an end, like a car that we own and we put up with it being junky because at least it gets us from point A to point B. I can treat my body that way sometimes. I can view my body that way sometimes. But God cares about our bodies. He made our bodies. They're precious to him. We're not just embodied souls. We are both soul and body. God cherishes both. That's no clearer anywhere than in the resurrection. And while I might be bordering on speculation here, I, I have a sense that God isn't just, just going to make us uh, brand new apart from who we were, but that he's going to take the elements of this world that sin has destroyed, and in a way that only God can, he's going to take those things and restore them and make new, including our bodies from what was old. So we should care for them. I, I need to learn to care for my body better. It's hard for our souls, which are made to know and be known, to flourish if our bodies are decaying. So I spent time thinking about how I can care better for my body. And that's also, by the way, it's given me a new perspective on the joy that can come from using our bodies in work and in service and in play. Like there's just a lightheartedness that when I'm thinking rightly about these bodies and them being so precious and integral to who we are as a whole being, um, there's this joy that comes from movement and using them in service and in work and in play. I want to um, stick in a pastoral side note here uh, because I know that some of us here live with the experience of chronic pain and il illness. Um, to some degree, all of our bodies are not fully functioning at 100% of what they could or should be in a broken world, especially as we get older. So I think there's a question of what stewardship looks like for those of us who are living in that state where we just don't feel well, maybe most of the time. Um, and the question you can ask yourself is, okay, what is my starting point that I can help when it comes to stewarding this body that God has given me? What can I do to maximize health and vitality from where I am? Um, something I have written here, I'll just say it and try to unpack it. What we don't do that we can do, eat, exercise, sleep, can have a real impact on our spiritual journey. So emphasis on what we can do. Okay, you may feel discouraged and disheartened because you feel like, man, I am so starting from 25% of what I should be able to do. What's the point? And I think that, as the, the, the glass half full perspective needs to be, what can I do from where I'm at? Um, the other thing I'll say here too is that remember God is gracious. Right? We often experience God in ways we never would otherwise when we are operating at less than 100% capacity, when we are living with chronic aches and pains or illness or disease. Um, I think of the Apostle Paul. Remember when he was fighting back against God because of the thorn in his flesh? We don't know exactly what that was, but a lot of scholars, for one reason or another, will um, uh, speculate in an informed way that either he had an eye disease, that he was close to being blind, or perhaps some other physical ailment. And at first, Paul was re reluctant to accept that, and he would plead with God to take it away, because he just only saw it as a hindrance to him being able to know God and make him known. 
But he had this paradigm shift that happened at one point where God just said, listen, my grace is sufficient for you in your weakness. My power is made known, made manifest more profoundly in your weakness. And all of a sudden, Paul's like, oh my goodness, this isn't something for me to resist. If I can't do anything about it, I actually trust my sovereign God is in control and has purposes even in this pain that he can bring about a greater good from, that I can know him better from, that I can make him known better from. And so it's a completely different perspective. So you're not hopeless if you're in that place where you are in pain or suffering of some kind and you see no way out. God knows right where you are and his grace is sufficient in your weakness. I am a soul made to know and be known. I am a body that is made to move and function to the glory of God. I'm also a child of God made to enjoy his good gifts. I need to be reminded that it's okay to enjoy God and to enjoy his good gifts. My tendency at times can be to live with a a low-grade sense of guilt over receiving gifts, my use of time for recreation as much as physical gifts. Somewhere in me, I think there's this little voice sometimes saying I should be doing something else with my time when I am seeking to enjoy the good gifts of life from God. And I think oftentimes there's a degree of shame in me that kind of mutes the joy that should be there that I can embrace as a child of God. An illustration that really brought this home, actually kind of what triggered this need for me to press into this identity, was the difference between an adult and a child at Christmas. Adults are reluctant to receive gifts, yes? Not all of us. Some of us are healthier than others in that regard, or maybe just greedy. (laughs) Believe me, I've been there too. I waffle. But adults are reluctant because they think, I don't know, gifts are for, for children or not for me, or oh, who, who hasn't said, oh, that's too much, you shouldn't have. But you look at a child, and even if there's a pile of gifts under the Christmas tree, they get to the bottom of it, and it's almost like, isn't there more? Is that it? And at its best, they'll just keep receiving gifts if you were to give them to them with joy and gratefulness. And I think there's a picture in that that is meant to be embraced by some of us as to what it should look like for us to embrace our identity as children of God, whom he delights to give good gifts to. Um, Sometimes those good gifts come through the love of others. Sometimes uh, through the generosity of others. Sometimes they're divinely arranged circumstances that provide certain luxuries or opportunities we never would have expected that God brings our way. To see those things through the lens of God's generosity and love toward you as his child isn't just a good idea. It is the way we are intended to live. And to shut yourself off from these gifts is to deny the reality of how much God delights in you as his child. It's all over the scriptures. Psalm 149 tells us, for the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Matthew chapter 7 tells us, in comparison with an earthly father who's sinful, if his son asks him for bread, would he give him a stone or a fish? Would he give him a serpent? Of course not. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good things to those who ask? He's a good giver of gifts. He delights to give good gifts to his children. Enjoy being a child of God. Embrace that identity. Finally, I say finally, I'm only going to share these first four um, husband and father were, were significant. They're a little bit more personal. They're harder to unpack in this context. Better unpacked in kind of a one-on-one conversational setting. 
and then for time's sake, I just wanted to kind of share these first four with you. So I'm a creator made to create order and beauty. So uh, four or five years ago, I took an, uh, a solo retreat, two, three-day solo retreat. And the big take-home from that one was God kind of laid on my heart that I can see my home as a mini Garden of Eden that's meant to be cultivated in order for kingdom life to flourish, which was significant for me because of how sometimes our home can seem like a burden uh, rather than an opportunity to be a blessing through our efforts to steward it. So what I, the parallel I came to see is just as Adam and Eve were charged to bring order to the garden and to the surrounding world to cultivate it and nurture it in order for it to flourish and bear fruit, so we do that for our homes. And when I say that, I, I definitely have in mind, you know, I'm thinking of my station in life as, as a, a parent and a husband, so families, right? So we, we cultivate our homes, we care for them, we create order so that kingdom life can flourish. But it's true of kids, you kids out there, like if your parents are asking you, uh, hey, would you do this? We need your help to, to maintain our home, to, for it to be a place of peace and where life can flourish. Chores, that's your way of participating. If you're not married, if you don't have a family, you probably are living somewhere so you can create order in that space um, that will lead to flourishing for you, but for, for others that you can invite in through hospitality to that place. So order creates the space for community, for kingdom life to flourish. Why? Why do we do this? Why is this a part of my identity and yours? Because God, our God is a God of order. You just see that by looking at the world around us. And then we're made in his image. So we're made to image him to the world by doing the things that he does. And so the lens for life that that creates for me is significant because in the small acts of creating order in my home, I'm pushing it back against the brokenness of this world, against chaos and entropy and disorder and creating spaces, pockets for kingdom life to be able to happen and flourish. It gives meaning to me differently than it used to when it comes to the little acts of service and order in my home, washing the dishes, cleaning up around the house, mowing the lawn, those types of things. Then create a space for family life and community life to flourish differently than they could if we just let it all go to chaos. Um, I don't know that this is the best illustration, which will make sense in a moment, but it's just the one that came to mind and there's probably better. I, one of the places I saw this happen, I say not the best illustration because I'm not the one that necessarily created the order. This, this, uh, this summer, I don't know if you guys experienced this. Some of you have nicer lawns to begin with. Our lawn was the best it's ever been. Man, it was awesome. And I did nothing. I came back from California. The Berlins, Knox Berlin, had been mowing our lawn. And I'm like, what did you, I texted Boone, what did you do? My grass has never been this green and thick. He's like, nothing. So just a couple weeks ago, we were talking to somebody and they're like, oh, do you have a lot of crabgrass? I'm like, yeah. They're like, well, that's because crabgrass is the only grass that can thrive in, in uh, drought. Normally our backyard is like 50% sand and dirt and, um, and that doesn't even, the grass that's growing doesn't even hold together when we have a torrential downpour because we're on a slope so it all washes away. So when our kids are playing out in the backyard, they come in a muddy mess and it's not necessarily the place they love to be. It's just been awesome to see this summer like how much more useful our backyard has been. Like Michael has enjoyed the fruits of that as well. <laughs> Uh, our next door neighbor. Um, and, you know, we've, we've actually literally invited more people over because we have a backyard that's like able to be used. I've had more incentive to take care of it. And 
I say not the best example because it's not necessarily what I did, although I have more incentive next year if we have more water to actually seed my back lawn. But it's a place where a little snapshot of kingdom life can happen. Relationships can be formed and grow um, at its best because I put in the labor, but God was just gracious to us this year <laughs> in the drought. But this can apply in our homes too with the smallest acts of seeking to create order so that then we can experience life and peace. That's probably the, the piece of that identity I gravitate more to, toward. As a creator, I'm, I create order. Like I sometimes get too caught up in that and I miss the beauty piece because our God is also a creator of beauty and not just order. I probably struggle with that part more. I made an attempt to stretch myself and be artistic at the beginning of my sabbatical when I dusted off my violin and that I pl played growing up and tuned it up. And within the first tuning, the, Tommy, I don't know why you're pumping your fists, but the, the bridge, which is that little piece of wood, you know, that holds up the strings, snapped in half. Like, God, I'm trying to be artistic and create beauty here. So thankfully, I have a sister who loves me and is a great, a really good violinist. And so she, she heard about that and, and got it repaired for me. And, um, and so I've, I've played my violin a little bit this summer, especially toward the end. In fact, um, when Tamara texted me on Sunday um, about Matt's passing, I pulled out my violin and we just, we, just shared some requests, him requests, and to the best of my ability, played some by ear, and it was just therapeutic. Sometimes, yeah, creating beauty just draws us closer to the heart of God and images him to others. It wasn't beautiful. I was scratching away the notes, um, something awful at times, but. And then this was, this was significant to me, I, so I hope to you as well. There's a connection between order and beauty. We, we create beauty because it points back to something about who God is. But the order is what makes that beauty accessible. There's a symbiotic relationship between the two. Think of a museum, beautiful works of art, amazing works of art that can inspire joy and admiration. What we often, I often take for granted, because I'm not this, is that there are gallery curators who are incredibly intentional and thoughtful with how they lay out that art with lighting and the flow of how you, uh, you observe it so that it becomes accessible, so that you can admire it at its best for what it is. We were created both to make, or to create order and beauty. And the two things need to work together um, at their best. So identity. We are always living out of some identity, always, even if unwittingly. So the value of this for me and for you is recognizing what your identity is in Christ and actually putting some work into defining what that means and looks like for you will help that to become a lens through which you actually are intentionally living with before you. And that'll help to give meaning and purpose even to some of the mundane or even painful things in life that you need to go through. So the other piece I wanted to share briefly with you guys on today is about the theme of communion that God uh, revealed to me this summer. Uh, I don't mean 
primarily necessarily the, the sacrament of communion, but I mean fellowship with God, relationship with God, again, knowing God with no strings attached, just to know him and being known by him. <clears throat> and one of the things that I came under a deeper conviction of is that this is the priority of discipleship. Communion with God is the priority of discipleship. And my sabbatical raised awareness in my own life for how many otherwise good things can creep in and take the place of communion with God with no strings attached, where communion with him isn't just an, is the end and not a means to an end. And it's also renewed my conviction that communion with God is the apex priority for a Christian following after Jesus. I believe we were made before all else to commune with our creator and maker. And while I do believe, by the way, that glorifying God and enjoying him forever is truly our chief end, which comes from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, you can't do either of those things well, right? I can't do either of those things well, glorify him or enjoy him if I don't actually know him and I'm not in deep relationship with him. I want to read to you an excerpt from a book by J.R. Packer called A Quest for Godliness, The Puritan Vision of the Christian Life, which both... It was significant in bringing about this renewed conviction and kind of, at the same time, rang a chord of hope in my life. This is something I want personally and for you. This is what he says. And again, remember the context here is this whole book is on reflecting upon one of the things the Puritans got really right. First, we cannot but conclude that whereas to the Puritans, communion with God was a great thing, to evangelicals today it is a comparatively small thing. The Puritans were concerned about communion with God in a way that we are not. The measure of our unconcern is the little that we say about it. When Christians meet, they talk to each other about their Christian work or Christian interests, their Christian acquaintances, the state of the churches, the problems of theology, but rarely of their daily experience of God. Modern Christian books and magazines contain much about Christian doctrine, Christian standards, problems of Christian conduct, techniques of Christian service, but little about the inner realities of fellowship with God. Our sermons contain much sound doctrine, but little relating to the converse between the soul and the Savior. We do not spend much time alone or together in dwelling on the wonder of the fact that God and sinners have communion at all. No, we just take that for granted and give our minds to other matters. Thus, we make it plain that communion with God is a small thing to us. But how different were the Puritans the whole aim of their quote-unquote practical and experimental preaching and writing was to explore the reaches of the doctrine and practice of man's communion with God. In private, they talked freely of their experiences of God, for they had deep experiences to talk about, like the, quote, poor widow sitting at the door in the sun whom John Bunyan met at Bedford. And then he goes on to quote John Bunyan's observation. I'll share it with you. He says, their talk was about new birth, and the work of God in their hearts, and how they were convinced of their miserable state by nature. They talked how God had visited their souls with his love in the Lord Jesus, and with what words and promises they'd been refreshed and comforted and supported against the temptations of the devil. Moreover, they reasoned of the suggestions and temptations of Satan in particular, and told each other of by which they had been afflicted, and how they were borne up under his assaults. And methought they spake as if joy did make them speak. Talk's funny, but John Bunyan was a pretty unique and amazing man. 
I, I suppose, by the way, that that could evoke in you two different responses. It could evoke a response of encouragement for what could be or judgment for what we're not. And of course, that's a blanket statement that he was making about evangelicals. But I want you to take it as, as I did, an invitation to more and a warning against missing the most important part of the Christian life. So easy, especially in our culture today, in the West, 21st century America, we're so busy. So it's a good admonition. And I want you to know that my passion is to grow in awe of the fact that our God wants to have communion with us as sinners even to begin with, and I wanna grow as deep in that communion with him as possible, and I wanna help others to do the same. In a sense, that's my mission statement as a pastor. Not the only thing that my ministry and pastorship is about, but the main thing that I want it to be about. And by the way, I think far from that detracting from the church's ability to be effectively engaged in the world around us, I believe making communion with God a priority, the priority, will result in us being more powerfully and sustainably engaged in serving others around us and in this world. There was another piece of this theme of communion um, that was building on something God has been teaching me over the years that I want to share with you, and with this we'll kind of move toward a close. And it has more to do with the question of, well, how? How do we experience communion with God? And in summary, I would say this, communion with God is the fruit of dying to self. And dying to self is an act of love. So communion with God is really through an act, acts of love. Now, I think it is true wholeheartedly that you and I have a portal to commune with our God through his word and through prayer. But from my life anyway, the perspective that was lacking when it comes to communion with God comes to how he makes that available to us through obedience, through putting God's word into practice. Okay, so to put it simply, I discovered more deeply that one of the primary avenues through which our communion with God deepens is love. Let me unpack that. I had shared with you guys, um, for those of you who are here, a little bit about my sabbatical. One of the things I'd hoped to do and, and did in part certainly is work through a study called the Person of Jesus Study that really examined the love of Christ. Um, and there was a session in that study called Burden Bearing. And it was talking about moments of uh, where out of love for others, we choose to deny ourselves and our normal impulses, right? To put our interests and our needs and our desires second to others. That's what it means to burden bear and to love others. And here's the thing, this was the profound insight. Oftentimes, I think the expectation is if we do what God calls us to and we're obedient, that the immediate aftermath of that will be this euphoric joy that we'll experience. And in fact, oftentimes it feels really bad and empty and shallow. Uh, this is just an excerpt from my journal during this time, which was the easiest way for me to kind of sum up what I realized. I said, I had the paradigm shifting insight that the empty or hopeless feeling that comes 
immediately after denying myself is, um, is the dying that opens the way for Christ's life to enter. Those feelings actually are the gateway, the entrance into which we can experience Christ's resurrection life in us. I've always resented that feeling when trying to sustain obedience in an area. I've often used it as a justification to revert to my previous ways or to quick comforts, thinking to myself that a feeling like this wouldn't be from God. And I've been missing that those feelings are actually invitations to experience the life of Christ. They're the gateways to deeper intimacy and satisfaction with him. Instead, I've been living with the delusion that there's something to be avoided rather than embraced as the pathway to true joy, transformation, and Christ-likeness. Why and how does that work? Because it's in dying that God brings resurrection life, is it not? I mean, it makes sense in principle. And that doesn't just happen once at some point in the future when our bodies are raised. That's a pattern of life that can be experienced in these many deaths and resurrection every day through God's power and presence meeting us in both the little and the big deaths to ourself. Daily, we have opportunities to experience these many deaths, right? Like humbly backing down from an argument when we think that we're right. Swallowing our pride not to let our accomplishments be known by others. Laying aside our plans in order to help someone else, our children or a friend. Resisting the temptation to self-medicate when we are overwhelmed with life. And the list could go on. These are all direct or indirect acts of love, by the way, because anytime you choose and I choose obedience to God, it serves to love those around us in some way. And oftentimes, that, the initial experience when we take those steps of obedience is a void, an emptiness, a sense of pointlessness. That's the feeling of death. And I, for one, can all too quickly run from it because it feels bad. It feels horrible. But what I've begun to find with more regularity by God's grace is that when I persevere in that feeling, in those acts of love, when I face the emptiness that that I feel before me and I invite Jesus into that, these are some of the deepest places of communion that I've experienced with him. Where he fills that void of loneliness where he pours out his love in ways that are hard to describe, where he binds up my broken heart, where he lays on my heart that it pleases him, whatever it is I'm doing, even if not others. We have to give him the space to do that. I have to give him the space to do that. So yes, communion with God can and does happen through being in the word and praying to him and with him. But communion with God also happens through acts of love that require us to die to ourselves. And that's all over scripture, by the way. It's kind of like the car that you do a bunch of research on and then maybe even buy, and then all of a sudden you see it everywhere. It's not like it didn't exist before, right? It was always there. Here are just a couple that I came across earlier this week. John 14, 23, Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. That's obedience, right? And my Father will love him, and we will come and make our home with him. 2 Corinthians 4.11, Paul says, For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our mortal flesh. It's communion with God. 
that comes through dying to ourselves. It's resurrection life through sacrificial love. And the reason why this was important to me, and I think can be for all of us, is because it provides a whole nother level of meaning to the suffering and, ex- and pain that you may experience in choosing obedience to God. It provides an incentive to endure because if you face the emptiness and you invite Jesus into that, rather than recoiling it from it and going the other way, you have an opportunity for God to come in and minister to your heart and reveal himself to you and to pour out his love and presence that you wouldn't otherwise. So maybe you've only ever looked at love as something that's gonna require sacrifice and self-denial and it's gonna be painful. And all those things can be true and are true. But it's also an opportunity to meet with your God and to commune with him in ways that wouldn't otherwise be possible. For me, that was really important and significant. I said that um, communion wasn't really tied to the sacrament, but even as I was kind of finishing my thoughts I wanted to share with you, I realized that it, it really is. The sacrament of communion every week is an opportunity to be in awe of the fact that God invites us sinners to be in communion with him at all. as we're reminded by the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, that that's why he had to die, is because of our sin. And it's also an opportunity to remember that it was Jesus' literal death for us, the ultimate act of sacrificial love, of burden bearing, that opened the floodgates of friendship with God and made that possible. For those of you who are here today who are followers of Jesus, embrace those realities that are true for you. If you're not here today and a follower of Jesus, Maybe today is the day to open up your heart to the possibility that you are a sinner in need of a savior and that Jesus is that savior. And if that is the place where you are in, there's nothing holding you back from coming forward and receiving the forgiveness that God offers you through the death of his son on behalf of your sins in your place. And if that is you, I'll let the words of Peter, the apostle from Acts chapter 2, instruct you on what that looks like and where to go from here when he says in verse 37, now when they heard this, they were the, the masses, Gentiles and Jews alike, who weren't yet believers in Jesus, who were hearing the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. They were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all those who are far off, everyone to whom the Lord God calls himself. Maybe he's calling you this morning. Don't wait to respond. Let's pray. Father in heaven, We address you by that name, those of us who are your sons and daughters, because it's an identity you have given us. Thank you. Thank you for sonship, for daughtership, for my sisters in Christ here this morning. Thank you for that privilege. Thank you for your love. Thank you for making a way for us to have communion with you. Lord, you know our weakness. 
I pray by your grace that you would make us a people who would treasure pursuing you, seeking to know you and be known by you as the most treasured thing in our lives. Please do that. Father, I, I thank you today for um, Jesus. And as we celebrate communion, I pray that it wouldn't be a rote act to us, but we would be reminded of these great realities, the ultimate act of burden bearing and of love that paved the way for communion with you and the identity as your sons and daughters that he secured for us through his death in our place. Holy Spirit, take and apply in new ways these truths to our heart that we may walk in faithful obedience to you and continue to grow in our knowledge and in our love of you and to be image bearers of those things in this world. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.